people. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, again, let's try to spread out the comments as we've been doing, uh, so that you know various people can uh, can share in that. Uh, but it's really it's really helpful, and uh, I appreciate you guys a lot. And uh, it's good for us to be able to uh, to be together uh, like this. And and one of the best things is you all getting to know each other and spending time with each other. A lot of you know quite a few of the people here, but some of you don't know very many. Uh, but you will enjoy it as you get to do that. And uh, you know, some of you I know will be leaving. Uh, for various activities later on, uh, when the time comes that you need to leave, you may leave. That's not a problem. We will do this with with breaks and supper. We'll do this till about 9:30 tonight, and then we'll start again at 9:30 in the morning. And we'll do it from 9:30 to 5 tomorrow and Thursday with the singing on Thursday night at 7. That's the plan. I'd really like to cover Leviticus. We'll see if we do that. It may not happen, but I'm we're working on that. And uh, I think it'd be really helpful for us to uh, to pray together some as we are together, <coughs> encouraging for us. And uh, so why don't we uh, pray together? Colin, you want to lead us in prayer? Our great and awesome, most holy God, we praise and thank you for this day that you've given. We thank you for your word that you've given us, your laws that you've given us, so we can study and see you, Father, so we can know how we can be more like you, how we can please you more. Father, we pray that we'll be able to see your holiness and that we'll be able to be holy as you are, as you'd have us to be. Father, we pray that we'll be an encouragement to one another in these studies and we'll take in the things that we learn so that we can serve you better, be more of a servant to you and to others, Father. We're so thankful for Jesus and what he did for us and the hope that we have because of the sacrifice he made for us to be more like him every day and tell others about him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. John and Leanne were mentioning at the break that, it, and this is probably worth thinking about, that while it seems really outside of our experience to kill and uh, dismember an animal, it probably wasn't nearly as much for them. They did not go to the store and get prepackaged meat. <laughs> and uh, they're pointing out, like, you know, Abraham having Sarah, you know, kill the kid and fix the meal for the travelers and so forth. Perhaps it wasn't so uncommon. Doesn't mean it wasn't work and difficult, but it may have been something a little bit more within their range of experience than it would have been for us. Probably a, a worthwhile thing to think about. All right, I want us to look at chapter 2. Um, this is the grain offering. It's another kind of offering. And uh, I think we will uh, read the first 10 verses. I'd like for you to do the same thing. Particularly, I'd like for you to try to see the natural divisions in the text as best you can as we look at this. Um, and so, would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10? When someone brings in the grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be a fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest shall take a handful of fine flour and oil, together with all the incense, and burn it. Burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of fine flour cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of fine flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is, it is to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest, who shall take it to the altar. 
He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is most holy. Of, it is the most. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. Okay, this is the basic uh, instructions as far as the grain offering was concerned, um, and this is going to be a little bit more difficult. But I'd like for us to first try to kind of outline this section because it will help us to sort of get our bearings in it and know where we are. But that's a little bit more difficult when it comes to these grain offerings. We're not dealing with uh, different kinds of animals here. We are dealing with some differences that I think we can categorize. So what do you think? Where do you see the natural divisions here as being? How it's prepared. All right, how it's prepared. I agree. Um, so what's the first kind and its preparation? Where do you find what verses? One through three. I think one to three. And how does the grain offering in one through three differ from the ones in four and following? I think it's not cooked. I think this is an uncooked grain offering. Four through seven would be cooked grain offerings. And what are the distinctions in the cooked grain offerings? All right, baked in verse 4, made on a griddle in 5 and 6, or in a pan in verse 7. So there's apparently three different ways of cooking the cooked grain offerings. And then 8 through 10 more or less tells the ritual that is to occur with all of the grain offerings. So I see this as uncooked 1 through 3, cooked 4 through 7, in three different ways, and then the procedure in 8 through 10. Anybody want to argue with me on that one? Okay. Um, so, if you present your grain offering, let's look at this. We'll also, in a moment, consider the significance of it. Let's see what happens here in the grain offering. What is it, anyhow? What's it made of? Flour. The base is flour with... Oil and frankincense. And uh, those are mixed together in the grain offering. Now, in verse 2, what's the procedure when it's brought to the priests? He takes it and offers it up as, it says offer it up in smoke. All right, what does he take and offer up in smoke? Sunflower, some oil, and all the frankincense. Exactly. He takes some of the flour, some of the oil, and all the frankincense, and that goes up in smoke. What happens to the rest of it? They keep it and eat it. Yes. The rest of it is food for the priests. Um, think a minute about the significance of the grain offering at this juncture. If the burnt offering represents giving ourselves, giving our lives to God, what does the grain offering more represent? Giving our livelihood, giving the fruit of our labor, giving up our substance to God. I agree. It seems like oil was used for consecrating a lot of things, anointing things. 
kings and priests and that kind of thing. So it seems like there's some kind of connection. Definitely. The oil was used in a lot of different ways. What kind of oil are you thinking of, by the way? Olive. Olive, yes. Not motor. Um, <laughs> if this is the case, why is all the frankincense offered up? What would the frankincense perhaps symbolize? Frankincense was expensive. It was... Uh, Par, it was a sweet-smelling aroma and was often used and things were expensive. Like That was one of the gifts presented to Jesus. That's true. It may have been more expensive. A lot of times incense and prayer are connected. I think so. I wonder if this is not the idea that when we offer the fruit of our labor to God, it needs to be accompanied by prayer. And the priest couldn't take any of that for himself. All the, all the glory belongs to God. You know, the priests who serve don't deserve prayers or incense to be given to them to, to uh, eat. All of that goes up before God. Maybe that's the idea. Um, who, who, by the way, could eat of the priest's part of the grain offering? <coughs> yes, Aaron and his son. So, the priests. Uh, when it's all said and done. And um, then you see the procedures with the cooked grain offerings in verse 4, if you bake it in the oven, uh, in verses 5 and 6 on the griddle, in verse 7 in the pan. You still make it of the same basic ingredients. And uh, you bring it, uh, you give it uh, to the priest, he takes that part that belongs to the Lord and burns it on the altar, and the rest of it he eats. It seems to me that the procedure is relatively simple by comparison to the burnt offering. Do you have some comments or questions on these first ten verses? It's interesting. There's not necessarily a set amount that the priest has to take. That it may speak some of what kind of priest there is, depending on how much they take of the offering. Yes. They were supposed to take the memorial portion and offer it. Uh, the part that belongs to God. But it, it's not, you're exactly right. It doesn't specify a quantity or percentage or something. So uh, I suppose some priests, if it looked pretty good, they might have uh, diminished the memorial portion, and that may not be a good attitude on their part. Yeah, good point. Could it be argued that your uncooked portion was really an overview because eating straight flour and oil, would, I don't know, probably not be... <laughs> the greatest thing to eat, I don't know. That's an idea. They could have cooked it though, then, could they not? Does it say that they just ate it raw? No. Did it have to be eaten right then? No, I don't think so. The priests were all men, though. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know that that's out of the question what Michael said. Could 1 through 3 be an overview and 4 through 7 be specifying the different ways that that could be cooked? That certainly wouldn't be out of the question for the type of writing that we've got here. Uh, I don't know. That's that's an interesting thought. I had not thought about it that way. Eric? Um, I was just thinking about the memorial portion. This kind of, what kind of, the idea of a remembrance. You know, maybe a reciprocal. God remembering his people um, and by giving them the fruit of their labor. Um, and then the people 
remembering God as the one who gave it to them. You know, maybe it's a prayer to God. Good point. Other thoughts? Yeah, man. Just about the idea of frankincense. It wasn't luxury. I mean, you needed flour and all of that. You didn't need frankincense. And so when you think about things we can give to God, He's not going to do things that will kill us. But what we can give to Him should be given. Mm-hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? What was frankincense? Was it liquid or solid? Or <clears throat> Gum resin with pungent balsamic. Odor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm resin with a pungent balsamic odor. That really helped a lot. <laughs> I'm sure you uh, had that uh, committed to memory and yeah, could read that I many that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I don't know. Somebody want to give us more insight into frankincense? I'm resin for various Asiatic and East African trees burned as incense. Ah. Incense. That was the name of one of those. Is that the name of one of those seven brothers? Frankincense, wasn't that? But that probably doesn't have much application to this. Wow. Uh, I had a question. I don't know if you ran across this. This was called the meat offering. Yeah, that's just because in Old English, meat meant grain or something. <laughs> it was it was a meatless offering. But meat in back years ago must have meant something different. Uh, in my translation, uh, or at least in some of it, it even has meal offering sometimes. It's kind of like, think about cornmeal or, I guess, flour meal or whatever. But I think grain offering is a really good term. <laughs> well, it communicates it to us a little bit better. Yes? This, this particular Yeah, if you hadn't asked me, I'd have told you. There is, if I can remember where. Um, there is a particular. Uh, how about uh, seven thirteen? Seven thirteen is at least one with eleven. I'm not sure there was anything else. It's the only one I can remember. That's a peace offering, bank offering, peace offering, with cakes of eleven grand. So, is there? Do we know if there's always significance when it says unleavened versus leavened? Well, in general, they were unleavened. Uh, having it with leaven is, uh, you know, exceptional. I mean, he makes the point in verse eleven: No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer it up and smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. The question is, why did he prohibit the leaven, and for that matter, the honey? I think leaven probably generally is a symbol of sin. And that, you know, you when you bring your offering, you've got to offer it without any mixture of sin, just like when we give ourselves to God, or give our, our the fruit of our labor to God, it should be pure. That's what I would guess. It is curious, though, that there is a sacrifice in which they were able to offer leaven. Uh, but I still think that in general, the leaven is probably a symbol of sin. You see that certainly in 1 Corinthians 5, <coughs> the application Paul makes with the little leaven, leavens the whole lump. This, considering how difficult it would have been for them to watch, or for them to offer the sacrifices, this one might have been a little difficult with that. 
aspect of they got to watch the priest eat it, and they didn't get anything. Um, it was their stuff, you know. We think of our stuff all the time, and, and we need to enjoy it. Well, they watched somebody else, in a sense, enjoy it, and they didn't get anything. Every sacrifice is difficult in the sense that we are giving up our hard-earned, you know, work for some other purpose. And we are so much in this idea of I worked for it, I earned it, it's mine. And, uh, you know, we have carried this private property idea to an extreme. And, you know, we struggle with giving it. And whether it's to the Lord, we struggle with giving it to those who are in need. You know, it's like, it's, it's almost like we feel deflated. You know, I did all this work and then I got to give it to somebody? You know, I got to give it to God? You know, it's a failure to recognize God as the source, primarily. But they're sacrificing much to the Lord in these offerings. Good point. Of course, that's the point David makes in 1 Chronicles 29. All they given to the, to the temple, God's anyway, he's giving it back. Yes. And that he makes, I was thinking about 2 Samuel 24, I won't offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. <laughs> You know, the very idea of a sacrifice, of an offering, is it costs. You know, if it doesn't, it's really not worth much. You know, when we wait and we try to give God whatever is just convenient in every area. I was just talking to someone today um, who was talking about um, his girlfriend that he says wants to become a Christian, but he's advising her not to yet because it would be really complicated with his family. And he thinks once he gets married to her, that it would be, you know, then it would be easy and that will be the time. And we had a pretty serious conversation about that. But, but, you know, when we do what we do for the Lord, only when it works in handy, we're really not serving the Lord. He doesn't accept the leftovers or, or the easy things. We've got to make sacrifices. Um, and, you know, they did. Other comments through 10 and 11? Was there... That had to be brought. At least here, no. Was there any passage? It seems like there are. Is that? Um, the quantity of um, of the grain offering. How much? Aren't there some of those things? At least in Numbers twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Maybe elsewhere, but uh, I think he gives some specifics on some of the grain offerings in Numbers 28 and 29 as far as quantity with various sacrifices. Grain offering usually accompanied other sacrifices, as did, as did the drink offerings that aren't even mentioned in Leviticus. On that point, isn't it true here that there was never a grain offering just given by itself? I don't know of a grain offering by itself. Does someone... As far as I know, you're right. You're, you're talking about that. That's in Numbers 28. I mean, there's several instances, but one such is Numbers 28:12. Talks about giving three tenths of an ephah of fine flour, the grain offering, and, and mixed with oil, and so forth. It goes on and spells that out. So Very good. Sometimes it is specified. You know. Yes. Good point. Other comments. Um, 
first one, you poured the oil on it, and then you get like a handful of Good point. Yeah, uh, that might go back to Michael's comment. Uh, if they cooked it, maybe they wouldn't be able to segregate the frankincense. I don't know. So perhaps that's an argument for today. They bring the raw materials <laughs> in one to three. A lot of different, I mean, pan, brittle, so on. I mean, was this just for, for God's generosity to the priest? I don't. I. I have no idea. I took it as just there's different ways of cooking your pancakes, you know, <laughs> whatever those were. I mean, you know, and so different people had different ways to do it. Other comments? Yeah. Okay. He makes the comment twice. I think this is the most holy offering, which is fascinating when you find the chapter one. I just think about a possible reason for that might be the fact that you know this is something that the priests get to you know, they don't have a specified amount but they get to take from it and so when you just have this idea of when I get to take from this sometimes you can get caught up in that and lose sight of the fact of what you're taking from and so he's making sure they understand that this is something holy for God and by his generosity you're allowed to take these things you realize what you're taking and they'd probably be much more conservative if they kept that thought in mind and you think of things today God has given us liberties you know but we're supposed to be holy for God and Realize when we take liberties and we are, we enjoy ourselves and things. Understand that that's a generosity from God, and we keep the idea we're supposed to be holy in our minds foremost. We'll probably be a lot more conservative in what we take for ourselves. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right on that point. The idea of the most holy is indicating that it's only to be eaten by the priests. They wouldn't have said that in chapter one because nobody ate it. So I agree with you. Other comments, Eric. I may have, I think so, but I don't remember okay. very clearly. I thought that was interesting. If that's true, maybe some idea of the uh, giver fearing the recipient and us fearing the It's a good thought. Uh, like a, this would be like a tribute payment. Would the word would be used for tribute payment uh, to uh, the vassal, to the master, um, in other contexts? Perhaps that's true. Somebody know anything about that further? Judges 3, 15, uh, also 2 Samuel 8 and verse 6, 1 Kings 4, 21, and 2 Kings 17. Are all in that line? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So that sounds like two of you agree, you know, on anything? Well, consider that to have proven. Do what? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the word that's translated grain or wheat. Uh-huh. Good. Do what? Oh, yeah, we got that from the same source. All right. What was the Judges 3, 15, also verses 17 and 18. 2 uh, Samuel 8, verse 6. 1 Kings 4, verse 21. And 2 Kings 17, verse 3. And all those verses determine uh, should be used. Which is translated grain or wheat. Yeah, that is the word for that. <coughs> Other comments and questions through 11? All right, would somebody read 12 to 16? 
You shall then cut as an offering of first fruits. You shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. And with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain, roasted in the fire, grits of new growth, for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up smoke in its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil, with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. Okay, these are more or less supplementary instructions. 11 and 12 don't bring leaven or honey except as first fruits, and even then they don't go up, they're not burned on the altar. And then in 13, always bring salt and season the sacrifice with salt in your grain offerings. And then in 14 to 16, he talks about the first fruits that were supposed to be brought of the grain to the Lord. Uh, and, and given as a grain offering to God. Um, and we said that the leaven, perhaps the honey also, in some way symbolizes sin or corruption, therefore it should not be offered up to God. The salt, uh, what do you think about that? Why should you season every grain offering with salt? Salting was a method of preservation. It was, I'm not sure that's the point here though. May have been. I don't know how expensive it was, but I'm not sure that's the point here either. What does he say? The salt of the covenant. It's the salt of the covenant of your God. That's kind of bizarre. The salt of the covenant? What would that involve? Well, there's other references to this covenant of salt. Uh, in the Old Testament, I just saw a side reference to Numbers 18, 19. Yes, an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you. I think that's the, I think that's the reference here. Yes, the, he does connect the covenant with salt and with it being like an everlasting covenant of salt. You've also got Second Chronicles 13, 5 when Abijah said... Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? I think the idea of the salt is the idea of, of, of something that, that is eternal. It reminds us of the eternal covenant. And, and somehow or other, salt is connected with the idea of the, the continuation, the perpetual, forever nature of it. You can think about that some more. I don't have a lot of information. But since he does connect this in verse 13 with the covenant, I think to connect it with those other passages that talk about a covenant of salt and seem to indicate the fact that a covenant of salt continues, endures forever. And also that the, we are the salt of the earth now. That's true. I'm not sure that's the same reference, but I mean the same idea, but maybe in some way it is. Sometimes it's difficult. You know, you get these... Uh, Get these figures. And you're trying to figure out which of them connect and which of them don't. And that's hard. Because sometimes figures can be used in totally opposite ways. I mean, 
you know, who, what great, what, what important figures in the Bible can be described as a lion? Jesus. The devil. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, wait a minute. Well, that, I mean, a lion's a powerful being, and so Jesus is, and I'm saying this. And so, not always can you just take a figure and assume that it's used the same way in every context. But often there are connections. So you're trying to figure out when are there connections and when not. And sometimes it's hard to know. Can you explain what salt is again? What salt is? Yeah, here. Well, I think it symbolizes the <laughs> symbolizes the continuing covenant that salt, when, when it was a covenant of salt, it seems to be a covenant that lasted forever. And so perhaps salt, uh, uh, you know, symbolizes this continuing covenant that they had with God. And so you'd salt the offering to remind them of that, that constant, continuing, uh, never-ceasing covenant with God. Something like that. Mike? Do you think it's fair to make that connection, like what, what Logan said, as being a preservative? In that same aspect that it makes things last? Last? Maybe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's fair. So far, where the priests, the offer, the living sacrifice, and possibly even the salt there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. You know, we can be looked at in various aspects. You think that's something. Look at how many ways Jesus can be seen. You know? I mean, he's the sacrifice, and he's the priest, and... He's the altar, and he's the tabernacle, and you know, so forth and so on. He's pretty much everything that there is, you know, symbolizes Jesus. So, different ways of looking at the same thing. We're I was thinking aspects. about different um, pagan gods that were they made sacrifices to, and how most of the time that was because they wanted something from them that they would offer grain offerings so that they'd have really big crops the next year. And that you don't see that as the reason here, that they're giving of themselves to honor and glorify God, and they're not giving just so they can get something out of it. That's a good point. That's exactly right. Um, you know, God deserves our, our sacrifice, our worship, and not just as some sort of a manipulative procedure as they would have done with the idol gods. Good point. Is there any connection between honey and I don't know. Um, here's my note. I just had a question mark after it. Honey prohibited as causing fermentation, and perhaps being a, an idea of corruption, or because of carnal sweetness. He doesn't want some, you know, humanly sweet thing given. I don't know if either one of those are good. Those are the those are the best things I came up with. <clears throat> Anybody else want to uh, comment on honey, Ben? Yeah, the idea, it's another luxury, it's another thing, you know, if you brought that before the priest, you know, which part would they want to take the most of? You know, which part would be the most tempting? It's just food you have to live off of, that's one thing. Maybe so. <clears throat> I guess one, one source uh, said that honey was often offered to pagan gods in the ancient Greece, and that he mentioned that this may be some way of uh, proving themselves uh, opposed to You know, those comments are often made about a lot of things. Almost everything in the Old Testament, every prohibition is taken as some sort of a slap in the face at paganism. I think there's some of that. 
I'm not sure there's as much as everybody else sees, so I don't know. No. <laughs> Man, you guys have the same notes. <laughs> They've been trading notes. And the first fruits in 14 to 16. It, this is the very idea that God deserves the first, the best. And if you give God the first, then it's like the whole harvest is dedicated, is being offered to God. That would have been difficult. You, you know, what do you want to do with the first ripe of the harvest? Eat it, absolutely. Man, can't you, you can't wait. But that's not what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to give it to God. And they get what comes after that. God gets off the top. Good principle for us. Comments and questions? <coughs> On chapter 2. I believe it means the first thing produced that season. Anybody? But would that also imply, based on what you know about harvest, that it would necessarily perhaps be the best? Generally, that's my point. It's going to be that. Generally, it is. You wait for that first tomato to ripen or that first whatever it is. And whether it tastes the best or not, psychologically, it's the best. We always want to visit Dixon when the corn is just first ripening versus that last. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe both times. Other odd other questions and comments on two. Good discussion. All right, and I'm not going to belabor uh, asking for comments and questions because I'd like to get through this. So chapter 3, uh, we've got another kind of offering, the peace offering. Uh, very different in some ways. And I think, again, I would like for you to hear the whole section, try to divide it up. And I would like for you to try to kind of visualize the procedure. Now, you're going to notice some similarities. You know, these. There's only so many things you can do with a sacrifice. So there's similarities. But, uh, but I would like for you to, again, think through the procedure and think about how to, you know, divide up the chapter. So would somebody read chapter 3? The offering of the sacrifice is peace offering. If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the town of meeting. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on its entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he, that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar, on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, on the fire. If it, is, if it is a food offering with pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, it is, is an animal from the flock, male or female. He shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on 
the head of, it, of his offering and kill it in the front of the son of me. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And then from the sacrifice of the peace offering he shall offer as food offering to the Lord his fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off the cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them in, at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on his head, and kill it in front of the tent of meetings, and meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall throw his blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall offer from it as his offering for food offering to the Lord, a fat the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver, he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord. You shall be it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. Okay. This is the peace offering. How would you divide up the sections here? Where the animal came from, would it be from the herd or from the flock? Or okay, from the herd or from the flock. What's the difference? <coughs> herd is cattle. Herd is cattle, and flock would include sheep and goats. And what does he do this time with the sheep and the goats? Separates them. Separates them. So what part, what part deals with the herd, the cattle? No. <laughs> One through five. Then the flock slash lamb is from where to where? Six to eleven. Six to 11. Flock slash goat is from twelve to sixteen. That's what I would say. And then seventeen is a specific prohibition against eating fat or blood. Now, do you see immediately any differences in the animals offered from the offering of the burnt offering back from chapter 1? Male or female. Doesn't have to be male. And it's another difference. Well, sort of a difference type of animal that's not to be offered in the peace offering, that was in the burnt offering in some cases. The goat? The birds. Yeah. No birds here. Now, there's probably a reason for no birds. And that is, we don't learn this yet, we will later, but I've read ahead. Um, the peace offering was divided between three. Some of it was given to God, some of it was eaten by the priest, and some of it was shared by the worshiper in kind of a festive uh, celebration uh, that, that part of this meat the, the, the worshiper actually ate. And so they got to have a, a feast out of the peace offering. Well now, a bird, what would be the problem with a bird in this? Yeah, not enough meat. You know, so a bird wouldn't work very well as a peace offering. Maybe that's the reason. Um... Generally speaking, the peace offering followed the burnt offering. And we'll see that later on. And I think because the peace offering is sort of celebrating the fellowship, the peace we have with God, and that comes after giving the atonement, the sacrifice to 
restore our relationship with God, then we have peace with God and we can enjoy a meal together with God in fellowship with Him. So, look at what happens. What does the uh, offerer do? He takes it to the priest, and what else does he do? Lays his hand on the head and kills it. And then what do Aaron's sons do? All around the altar, uh huh. And what else do they uh, specifically do with this animal? Yes, and more generally, the fact. The fact. What do they do with the fact? That part is given to God. And that's true in every one of these, and true in general, because he will say in 417, it's a perpetual statute, uh, 317 rather, is a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. So the fat was always taken and given to God, even in this sacrifice that both priest and worshiper got to participate in eating. Why would the fat always be given to God? Absolutely. And the best part belongs to God. If we want to have peace with God, we're going to have to give up the best part of ourselves to God. All of our rich emotions, every intense feeling, every rich thought should be given to God. He gets the best. In every sense, God would get the the best. Sometimes Christians would prefer giving the lean to God and keeping the fat for themselves. Uh, But that's not what we're supposed to do. You know, I mean, you can think about that in a zillion applications. Um, when uh, when would you choose to to study the Bible normally? Y'all, all that, whatever time you have left over at the end of the week. Leftover time? Time when you're too tired to do anything else? Or whatever? Uh, we need to use all of our time. I'm not saying that. But... But, you know, if we're just sort of given the leftover time, what about praying? Whatever we think of it. Well, that's good. Oh, should, we, should we only pray when we just, we're, we're waiting in line and we don't have anything else to do? No. Or, or whatever. Now, it might be really good to pray when we're waiting in line and, and devote every possible moment to the Lord. But if we're just sort of saying, okay, I got that taken care of, I got managed to squeeze that in and not really interfere with anything, you know, that, that shouldn't be our mentality. We ought to seek to give the very best of every part of us to God. Comments and thoughts on that and on these first five verses. You think maybe a little bit the fat also could represent what God has blessed us above what we need, you know? When, when we when our bodies get fat, you know, it's because we've had more food than what we physically need. So it's almost like God's blessings upon us more than what we. Really it would need symbolize the richness of God's mm-hmm. blessings, no doubt about it. Good point. Other thoughts on the fat or on anything through five. Yeah, I 
I think the people often pray like just casually, like they have a certain time when they pray, like at meals and before you go to bed, just kind of casual times more than often. Yes. When, when, when any of our service to God is just sort of, you know, kind of squeezed in there or just becomes kind of a mechanical routine, it's not really giving the fat to God. The fat would symbolize the very best we've got in every sense. The best we've got belongs to God. Dixon. I'm not sure that we understand exactly why he brings the kidneys and he repeats that in each one of these states. But the kidneys typically on a fattened animal are totally enclosed, encompassed in fat. And so if you just simply open the the cavity, the chest cavity, that animal up and and the lower cavity, the abdominal area, you may very well miss that. But I think it's interesting that he that out because it wasn't a matter of just taking the entrails out, but they had to go in back in. Typically, they won't necessarily they won't come out with the rest of the entrails, and you got to go back in there. They'd be totally hidden. But I think that's part of the purity of what he's saying about the fat <coughs> that you've got. You know, you take the kidneys and the fat that surrounds or encompasses that because it wouldn't necessarily. It, and that, again, that the whole idea of the giving God that being the best, just to making sure none of that's left. Yeah, give him all the best. That's, that's good a, point. That's a point that's, that's a part that's easily left inside of the carcass. Good point. I didn't know that. That's helpful. Shane. Going back to what you said about uh, that sometimes when we work for the things that we make and we want to keep it for ourselves, but I think what we need to think about is how much God's done for us. I mean, he deserves more than the best that we have. He deserves our, our souls. And I mean, the best we can give him, he deserves more than that. So why not give him that? I mean, he deserves it. It's not like we're giving to someone that doesn't deserve our love, our just to think that it's the best we can give him. Amen. Kelly. Well, and you know, going back to what this is, this is uh, this is not required. In some instances, it's not required. And so, if you were having someone in your house who you really appreciated, you'd give them the best cut of the meal. And so that's exactly what they were doing here. And it's just it's such a it's such a really neat part of the Leviticus because it is is some of this at least was voluntary, and they did it just because, as you said early on, it was out of the the swelling up of their heart and gratitude to God. And that starts the question for us: what what do we do? It's just an overflowing of our gratitude to God. What kind of what kind of Gifts are we offering to God, and are they out of this that kind of gratitude? Good point. Good comment. There's also the idea of of taking the fat and leaving the lean for God. It's kind of like when you have two portions of food, like fish, and then one's uh, looks real good and the other's burned, and you know that the other person similarly is in God wants the good one, but you take it even though you know He wants it. That's kind of like purposely taking what you know not only want he not only wants but deserves also. Absolutely, the best belongs to him, Max. It's also interesting that in a voluntary sacrifice that is so specific as to how it's supposed to be done, that they don't just get to choose. You know, we'll do this and we'll give him this. That God is such an awesome God, and because of, I guess it all does belong to him, whatever. It's got to be done the right way, or it's not for you. It, it kind of 
Absolutely. And, and there's even some regulations on when they had to eat it, which day they had to eat it on or days. And if they kept it longer than that and tried to eat it, it invalidated the whole sacrifice. Even though it's voluntary, if they don't do it right, it doesn't count and it, it uh, is an offensive thing to God. I think we can see that with today if we try to hear a lot of times, oh, I was just trying to help, you know, well... You don't go about that the right way or with the right motives or you know something like that. Then you could make things a lot worse with people in situations you're trying to help them out, or uh, you know, then if you would have just left them alone, it would have been a lot better. And the same thing's true with the Lord. Sometimes we come up in our mind with how you know, well, this will be a blessing to God. I'll, I'll do this for the Lord, but He may not approve of it or be pleased with it in any way. Because it's not the way he said to do it. Good point. What exactly is offered? And it's like, what part of the animal? Is it just the inside and the fat excluding kidneys and the long over the liver? And then they would keep the rest of the animal? Or is part of the animal offered as well? Oh, let's see. We got that in uh, perhaps... I don't know. In seven, is there anything that specifically says more about what part they get? I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. You know what they don't get. Right. Was there any part for the Lord other than the fat and the blood in a peace offering? That's the question. I'm not sure that it was. I can't find where it was. Maybe we'll come across that later and can remember that, but I don't know of any other parts being given to God in the peace offering. So the rest of the end was eaten by the priest and, and the worship. And there are specifics about that in chapter 7. Everybody okay with that? Anybody want to correct us on that? At the time Moses was alive, even he got a specific part of that. Yes, he did, when he served as priest in the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Kelly. Getting back to the guts of uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, There's that passage somewhere with Balaam in Numbers 22 or so, where they read the, no, it's, a, it's in the prophets, and where they read the liver and they, where is somewhere, wherever that is. Ezekiel 21. So, wouldn't this here, wouldn't this kind of meal that God's designed here be so different from what the world around them was probably doing, certainly in the first century, versus what you know the idols, the idol worship? And I mean, really, would if that's a correct assumption, so it's true in the first century, and you would perhaps assume back then, really would have pointed the spotlight on how the, the worship of God was holy. Holy thing, it's actually it was even regulated, and he had specific. It just looked so different, I think, than the world around him, and the, maybe the immorality that went on in the worship of Baal and other gods. And would have just pointed again the spotlight on how pure God is. Good point. I agree with that. That's a good point. Yeah, they. You know, this is this is not at all like pagan worship. 
A lot of times people say that if you just love God, you know that'll be enough. And when we read, if you love God, you'll keep His commandments. And this is really what loving God is. Loving God isn't just uh, saying you love God and, or any of that, but, but doing what God wants you to do. And those people that always seem to say that that's all you need aren't doing much of what God, God commands. Talking about loving God and really loving Him are often quite different. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? In fact, in the Bible, there's very few instances where you'll bring out, or in fact, I can't think of any instance when, when you can bring out where someone was loved God and that wasn't shown because of their obedience. Mm-hmm. The two always go hand in hand. Sure. Good point. James? Leviticus uh, 7 would that maybe indicate that, the, that God did get some of the meat in the sacrifice? I'm not sure exactly how to interpret that passage, but would that maybe say that? I think no. I think it's that if you're unclean, you can't eat it. I think that's the point. Not that they were eating God's part, but that they weren't allowed to eat the peace offering if they were unclean. I believe. Eli's sons did that. Eli's sons? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they just got, they, they took whatever parts they wanted, including the fat that always belonged to God and anything else that belonged to God if they wanted it, and just basically ran roughshod over the offerer as well. They would eat the people's part in the peace offering or whatever. Uh, they just basically, they're the priests, we get what we want. And that was outrageous in 1 Samuel 2. John. And so this part that was offered up to God, uh, verse five talks about it going on top of the burnt offering. Is that am I understanding that correctly? On the burnt offering, wouldn't that be the daily sacrifices in the morning, the evenings? Mm-hmm. Probably so. So would it be offered on top of that? In fact, I think that's the way John's uh, version read. What do you have in three five there, John? Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar and on top of the burnt offering which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering of pleasing around the food. Okay. It might lay there better on top of it, whatever is already established versus just you know. kind of double decker. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that but that's helpful. Well, yeah, and they consecrated that whole courtyard as an altar at that time, didn't they, to accommodate all of that? Am I right? Okay, you're not there yet. Solomon's, uh, the, the dedication of the temple was Solomon. Then they, then they, then they, they used a bigger area, didn't they? I may be wrong. I may be thinking about something else. You guys need to get a little further. 1 Kings 8.64 King comes created the middle of the court that was before the house. Yeah. So I assume he's using... Because he says for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small. This is 1 Kings 8.64 to hold the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat of the peace offering. 
It's interesting, too, the fat of the peace offerings, as if that's the specific part of the peace offering that would be offered. Good to have you here, and thanks for your comments. Some of these guys will be back, so I haven't said anything too bad yet. All right. Maybe they'll be back. All right. Now we can breathe. Uh, no. <laughs> Other comments and questions through 3 5. Okay, in 6 to 11, it's basically a similar procedure for the uh, lamb. Uh, it's male or female without defect, offers it, lays his hand on it, slays it. Aaron's son put the sprinkle of blood around the altar, and then uh, the fat, including what specific part on a sheep? Tail? The, the tail. I have read that in Palestine there was a special breed of broad-tailed sheep that had very heavy fat tails, and that that tail was, uh, you know, a special fatty part of the sheep that would be given to God. And that, you know, he makes... Again, maybe in the idea that we want all that fat to go to God, he, he, he separates out the sheep to emphasize the fact that that fatty tail belongs to God. Comments and questions through verse 11. Okay. And then 12 through 16... We have the procedures for the goat. Same thing. Lays his hands on it, slays it. Sons of Aaron sprinkle the blood around the altar, and they take the entrails and the fat uh, on them, the kidneys and the lobe of the liver and so forth, and present them to the Lord. All fat is the Lord's. End of verse 16. Comments or questions on the goats? Maybe confused, but are the kidneys and the lobe offered or not offered? Offered, right? Think so. The kidneys are mostly fatty, I would think. I mean, pretty much aren't. No? No, no they're solid. Really? Itself is meat. Okay. If they are encased in fat. Okay. So. This logo off the liver, though, that part was largely fatty, or what? Well, our livers are largely fatty, aren't they? I mean, they're very, a lot of cholesterol. That's my understanding. There's a little piece that hangs off of it that's always attached to that. It's like a big clump of fat. Clump of fat on there. Okay. That's my understanding. I could be wrong. All those organs, organ meat is real rich. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that may be part of it, is that the organ meat is, not that it's got fat around it, or, or marbled with fat, but it's actually a really fatty kind of meat. That's why people were for the elk. They're not supposed to eat rich man's food. Rich, uh, organ, organ meat. meat. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Bruce is an expert on that subject, unfortunately. <laughs> organs are also, many organs are covered in fat. Too. Yeah, okay. So, fat without and within. <laughs> Maybe if the Lord wanted the, the fatty meat, he would have required the prime rib. Yeah. 
All right, how are we doing temperature-wise? Should I close this back a little bit, or do we need it still over? Anybody frigidly cold? I'm plenty cool. I don't know if anybody else is cool. Me too. You got blankets back here. I'm fine. But I'm always fine. No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm talking. I'm leaving. I just noticed some people looking a little cold. <laughs> oh, we got blankets. Yeah, you can. It, it is really hard to, you know, when you got one source of cold and about 45 sources of hot, it's kind of hard to regulate it, you know. So. And then you've got 17, that uh, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. Um, there was never a time, ever that man was allowed to eat blood. That's true in the, if we want to call it that, the patriarchal age in Genesis 9, in this era of the Mosaic age, and it's also true in Acts 15 for us in Christ. Blood belongs to God. It is not. Uh, the life is in the blood, and men are not allowed to, to eat blood. Uh, perhaps he mentions that here, more because the subject would come up with the peace offering that people ate parts of the peace offering. They'd never eat the blood of a well, grain offering, there's no blood, or of a burnt offering, because they never ate anything in the burnt offering. But now, they did eat parts of the peace offering, so it's relevant to emphasize you never eat the blood. That is an issue more in Brazil, because there are more foods prepared with blood than in the U.S., and a number of um, brethren from the U.S. who had gone to Brazil in other eras and had taught several things that were wrong also taught the brethren generally that it was okay to eat blood. Uh, but I think Acts 15 specifically says that it's not. I realize not everybody agrees with that interpretation, but I think that is the case. Uh, blood is not allowed to be eaten, yes. Um, what does that mean, uh, like going to a restaurant? Is that should that dictate how we eat our steak or something like that? I mean, what what does eating the blood mean? Eating the blood means um, either draining the blood and using it specifically in a dish, as is often done in Brazil, or not bleeding the animal and leaving the blood in the meat. I don't think in restaurants and things like that. I think pretty much always it use they use animals that have been properly bled. Uh, you would have to request specifically. In fact, I doubt, I don't know where you go to a restaurant here that would serve you blood something. There are some, Greg. What? Vietnamese. Uh, yeah. A lot of the Asian cultures, you can go into their stores now and buy blocks of coagulated blood. They use it in their soup. Just like jello. It looks like that. Pretty gross. Yeah, blood sausage in Italy. There, there would be some dishes even eaten in America, but not commonly. And certainly I don't think going to a steakhouse or something like that, you're not going to be eating blood. Well, I think he was talking about should you order your steak rare? Or Maybe that's a personal taste question, but that had nothing to do with the blood. That, that red juice you have, that's not blood per se. I'm not saying there's no trace element of blood in it, but the animal's been bled. So you can have your steak raw or well done or however way you want it. <laughs> Just don't have it at all. I don't care. <laughs> uh, one of the another one of the reasons you see that first the, the one of the reasons that I think personally that God uh, commanded not to eat blood was first of all because 
that could in a way turn them into cannibals if they somebody ended up liking the taste of buffalo for whatever reason, <laughs> which I'm surprised at. But and then it's also because if you had the blood of animals, you could easily catch some catch some kind of rabies or something like that. Yeah, those points are often made. Of course, he he prohibited animal blood here. We're not even thinking about human blood. But but the points often made that these regulations had health benefits. Maybe. I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think it out of the question that God could kill two birds with one stone. Maybe some of these regulations help their health. I don't think that's the point. That's certainly not the point he makes. And so I don't think, I don't think this is primarily, we'll debate that issue maybe a little bit more when we get into some food uh, regulations and so forth. But I, I don't really think that the point of this was so much for their health but was a positive ordinance because the life's in the blood, the blood belongs to the Lord and not to any of us. That was the significance of Jesus' death, too, that he shed his blood. And, and we always see that that was the atonement, and it just doesn't seem right. What? God said to use that. Yeah, yeah. Jesus shed blood symbolized the fact that he sacrificed his life for us. Exactly. It's cool to figure out that the giver of life deserves our life, or, or the life of anything. That since he gave life, that when life is taken, the the blood which is the life is given to him. That I mean, it's not really our place to take at all. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. Um, why was there not a exception? Exclusion of the fat in the New Testament. What was what's the difference? All right, that's a good question. What about the fat, and why isn't the fat excluded in the New Testament? Here's a question I'll throw out that I'm not sure the answer to. Was the fat given to God and exclusively to God only in sacrifice, sacrificed animals? And they could eat the fat of an ordinary animal, or were they prohibited from eating fat in every case? I'm not sure about that. Somebody want to offer a learned exposition well, of that? In verse 17, if we're taking that you can't eat blood anytime, then we would have to do the same thing with fat. In all your dwellings. Perhaps. It says, you shall, in all your dwellings, you shall not eat neither fat nor blood. But I'm saying that mostly from the standpoint that various other passages also blanketly condemn the eating of blood. Maybe that's true with fat as well. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of throwing that out, and that's a debated issue as to whether or not the fat uh, prohibition was just for the sacrificed animals, or whether really they couldn't eat fat. Period. They couldn't have liver and kidneys and you know fat of the animal. Obviously, that wasn't sacrificed to God in an ordinary animal they ate, but were they still prohibited from eating the fat? Maybe so. And, and verse 17, he does parallel fat and blood. Kelly. This is helpless. Maybe one reason in Daniel 1 that Daniel didn't partake in some of the king's food because it might have been that for Could be. Yeah, could be. <laughs> Anybody want to give me a definitive statement on uh, the fat? Somebody know? No fat, and that's that. All right. <laughs> Definitive. <laughs> What's that? Third opinions. That's third opinions. Yeah. Ben Benjamin opinions. Right. 
right. Other thoughts? Anything else on three? Okay, chapter four. Uh, would somebody read one and two? No, that's good. Let's stop for two. Yeah. We're going to deal with three and following, but he starts this out freshly. The Lord spoke to Moses. A new section, as I suggested earlier, in the first three sacrifices, the issue is mostly the proper procedure that's to be followed. But in four and five, these are offerings for specific situations, and the focus is much more on the occasion that requires the offering. Um, so, so it is, this is laid out differently, starting here in, in chapter 4. Now, he says, if a person sins unintentionally, and any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, that's the general statement. This is the procedure for people who uh, unintentionally sin. The word sin, you've heard this before, but uh, you may want to look at the passage. Judges 20 and verse 16 <clears throat> Judges 20:16 out of all these people 700 choice men were left-handed each one could sling a stone at a hair and not sin only translated not miss because sin literally is the idea of missing you don't hit it you miss it we are missing the mark but that's that, that's the same word and not sin <laughs> that is uh, not not go astray from the target. So when somebody goes astray, when they miss, when they don't hit it dead on, then here are the procedures that are to be followed. Comments and questions on these first two verses here in chapter 4. When does this end? This is the first verse. When, when is... Oh, this whole section on sin offerings, 513. This type of offering is from 4.1 to 5.13. Going to be, it's going to be divided in chapter 4. I don't think I'm going to have us read the whole thing. That's a little much. But it's going to be divided by the rank of the officer, of the offerer. And then in chapter 5, it's going to be uh, some specific situations that require it and the various provisions for the poor. But all of that is still dealing with the sin offer. Other comments and questions through 2. Misty. I think so. Uh, didn't mean it, may not have even realized it at the time. Is that different from intentionally sinning? I think it is. Okay. Are there laws about what you do if you intentionally sin? Uh, you're not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> the sin offering was for unintentional sins. How would you know that you unintentionally sin? Um, well, that's a good question. And um, sometimes it may be that later it comes to your knowledge. You become aware of the law, or you stop and think about what you've done. Somebody else might point it out to you. Uh, I think in some of these cases you may even sort of feel guilty and not be sure exactly what you've done. 
Sacrifice for intentional sin. Maybe the day of Okay. I guess it's hard to imagine what's an unintentional sin, but I wondered they didn't have pins, I guess, maybe, or for their sheep and livestock as much as we would think today. What if you accidentally killed somebody else's goat and you really didn't know? And later, I think sometimes we sin, and at the time we really weren't realizing what we were doing, and then later we reflect on it and we realize that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that, but at the moment it wasn't a conscious, deliberate act of rebellion. Kind of the idea of first time, five, To some extent. Other comments? Alright, we're going to look at the various uh, people who had sinned. And so I want you to, again, consider the procedure. Uh, that's what this is mostly going to deal with. So, 3 through 12. <clears throat> if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. <clears throat> and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out on the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat on him. Through twelve. And the two kidneys with the fat on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as removed from the ox in the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest is to offer them the smoke of the altar on the altar of the burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, with its head and its legs and its entrails, and its refuse, it shall at the rest of the that is, all the rest of the bull he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on, burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out and it shall be burned. All right, very interesting. This is the sin of who? Priest. priest. Which priest? The anointed priest. The high priest. The high priest sins. This is serious um, because he has such an impact on everyone. Sin so as to bring guilt upon the people. Ben? How does a uh, priest, no, priest have his own bull? Would he have to go out and buy that? He wouldn't have time to go and take care of himself. Uh, what about that? Did the priests have... I mean, they had some... Some animals? 
I think so because <clears throat> if you'll recall, uh, when they when they finally took the land of Canaan, they had special area outside the cities that were specifically they didn't own land per se, uh, but they did have land that was allocated to them, and they also got a, a portion of the the various uh, spoils of, of war that they that they took. Okay, I think he's right. I think. The fact that they had the farmland outside the cities would be an indication they used that for something. So perhaps the priest would have had. Of course, we're before that time here. but Right. Uh -huh. Well, these are the instructions for that time. Right, sure. Anybody want to disagree with that? Uh, yeah. Joshua 21, 13. So to the sons of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron the city refuge for the manslayer. Oh, yeah. With its pasture lands and living with its pasture lands. Yeah, yeah. Let's give you the other. And they give a tent to the priest. Yes. Of everything, including animals. Okay. The tithe that the priest got would have included animals, I suppose so. Okay. So, we think priests have both. <laughs> At any rate, he's to, uh, to take to the Lord a bull. Now, um, in relative terms, we've been looking at several different animals. Where would the bull stack up in terms of value of the kinds of animals we've been looking at? Top notch. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is the high priest. Um, he needs the most costly animal possible to atone for his sacrifice, for his sin, that has had a negative impact on all the people. The procedure here is different and interesting. First time he brings the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lays his hands on the head of the bull, lays his hand on the head of the bull rather, kills the bull, and then what does he do with the blood? This is different and interesting. Dips his finger in it and sprinkles it. Um, Where? Before the veil. <clears throat> Where's this veil? Inside the, the tabernacle itself. Yes! He takes this blood into the holy place. He sprinkles it there, well, sort of toward the Lord. <laughs> you know, except he can't get through the veil. But, uh, but he sprinkles it there, and then what does he do uh, when he dips his finger in the blood? Oh, no, when he, when he uh, what does he do with some of the rest of the blood? Put you on the horn of the altar. Which altar? Altar of incense. incense altar made of what? Gold. Made, uh, located where? Right before the. Right in front of the veil, as close as it could get to the presence of God Himself. So, um, this this uh, blood, contrary to what we've been seeing so far, was actually taken <coughs> right there before the Lord, and then the rest of the blood was poured out at the base of the burnt offering altar out there in the courtyard. But seven times the blood sprinkled toward the veil, and some of it put, kind of daubed there, on the horns of the golden altar, the altar of incense. Um, you will not find blood brought into the holy place often. And this is an indication of the seriousness of this, and of the necessity of purifying even the incense altar, perhaps. Um, because the high priest has committed this sin. And then what parts are offered on the altar of burnt offering? 
similar to the peace offering, it seemed to me. I agree. The fat, the kidneys, the lobe of the liver. Uh, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, but what does he do with the rest of the animal? Carry it outside the camp and burns it. Now, we are going to see that in most sin offerings, the priest ate part of it. Not in this one. Why couldn't the priest eat part of this one? Yeah, you can't, you know, benefit by, by your sin. You can't eat a part of your own sin offering. You know, to some extent, the portion of the priest of like the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering for other normal people and so forth, you can think of that almost as like the agent's commission. You know, the priest got to eat a part of it, but not for their own sin. They don't get a commission on that. Shame. That's cool. I'm done. I assume unintentional sin. I don't know what you do, unintentional. Here that are the sin offering is being offered for or unintentional. That's what I believe, Mike. I've I've often looked at this also uh, when the when the priest would eat the other uh, offerings that he was given. That was almost you know the priest was the earthly uh, representative for God, and when he ate that, it was as though God was accepting this and. He was offering the forgiveness. He had accepted the offering. I and agree with that. When he doesn't, you know, when he's not able to eat these things like that, you know, um, it's a little bit different, than, you know, I guess. I agree with that. I think the priest actually eating the offering was a symbol of God's acceptance of the offering. That's a good point. John? The statement in verse 3, you know, sin so as to bring guilt on the people may just would it not just be reflecting that when that person sinned, that's what happened? I think so. It's not as if, well, there's a sin that does do this and a sin that doesn't. I agree. Yes. That when he says in three, uh, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, that's what happened when the high priest sinned. Not that there were some sins that brought guilt on the people, but the high priest committed others that didn't. I agree with that. Possibly you could have forgotten the procedure at times. And or you know, just did something before you should have done something else, and that wouldn't that would have been sin. Absolutely. And boy, that was critical because he was their intercessor before God. And I just it's, it's a encouraging thought thing about you know, Jesus will never make that mistake. Yeah. We never I mean if they if a sincere thought would be very watchful to see that he did that correctly. And we don't have to. We have no system. Amen. Right. If he made a mistake in sin, then that would nullify all of the offerings that the people were bringing to him. Yes. Yeah, it's a serious issue. You don't want your high priest, you know, um, separated from God and, and with guilt on his uh, on his record. So you probably don't want to stay up too late on Friday night and kind of get a little tired and get a procedure. Yeah, good point, yes. Like, I, I think of this too, it's a lot different, you know, today we're kind of blessed with uh, being able to deal with sin privately and in our own way for the most part, 
Uh, but here, no matter who committed the sin, if you're going to be honest about it, make atonement for it, or try to. Um, it was a very public matter. They see you leading your prize bull down the, down the street or through the, through the village. Everybody knew what was up, you know. Great point. Absolutely. That, that's a very good point. We, oh boy, we are so uh, gifted with the uh, ability to hide our sins. And uh, that just becomes such an important thing to us. And we need to, we need to think about that. That's a good point. Shane. And if you see your high Which is usually our excuse for not confessing our sins. I don't want to hurt people by, by you know, disappointing them and letting them know what I've done. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. That's, uh, we need to be open about our sins. Ben? It's, you know, it's interesting. He has these elaborate you know, rituals. He wants to, certainly wants things done for unintentional sins. I mean, these things people don't accident. Maybe it was some, like you look in chapter 5, it's like, you know, if they touch something that was dead and they didn't realize it. Unintentional sin is serious. James. For an intentional sin, was there still a soft, uh, an offering made, or did we hear an offering made for intentional sin? What Kelly suggested is perhaps the offerings on the Day of Atonement would have included intentional sins. But those would have been the only times Anybody want to deal with that? I, I. As far as I can tell, there wasn't any offerings in general for intentional sin. The guilt offering does imply that there were intentional embezzlements. Yes, that is true. There, there are certain situations that the guilt offering may have been for intentional sins. That's true. Verse 15, 30 and 31 says that we should bear his Other comments. What, what's a clean place outside the camp? Well, a place that wasn't unclean and somewhere that was outside of their encampment. I well, isn't there was a place for using the bathroom, wasn't there? Like a specific place, and so maybe he's saying, you know, don't go there. Go to a place that is clean. Something that had not been defiled in some way. That would kind of represent carrying the separating the sins of the people and such. Yes. I've often looked at it that way, like, you know, God doesn't want not only himself within the tabernacle area, but he also doesn't want his people to have sin amongst themselves, so get it out of your way from the people. Yeah. Good point. You wouldn't want the people contaminated. Other thoughts through uh, 12? Okay, I probably ought to. Wendy, why don't you go up and check and see if supper's about ready. Well, uh, let's uh, take a minute here. I'll tell you what we'll do. I think, I think we're going to break and eat here in a second, uh, but we'll check and make sure of, of that. Why don't we... Uh,
Why don't we take a moment and perhaps sing another song? I think that would be a good thing for us to uh, to do. And we'll find out if uh, if this is the time for our break or not. Uh,